This is Joshua Bell with the Kilt and the Cloth and with my Tuesday morning Bible study as we continue in the book of Esther, chapter 1, verses 16. So uh, I, I wanted to just kind of give us a refresher uh, in the Hebrew Bible. One of the things that's extremely important to recognize is, is that Esther almost didn't make it into the Bible. Josh, how do they know that? Oh, it's a great question. How do they know that? So somebody kept somebody <laughs> kept notes. Uh, they they really did. They kept notes. Um, uh, there's there's a uh, collections. Uh, so let me slow down. When the collection of the entire Bible that we have today was put together, we have our very first collection in 343 by a. Uh, a Greek, well, a Roman citizen by the name of Eusebius. And in that, he had the, the Greek version of Esther. Uh, then in 356 uh, CE, we have a, another collection by the name of a gentleman by Anastasius, uh, which is interesting that he decided to not leave it, but he kept Daniel. And so I forgot that part. And Eusebius, he doesn't keep Daniel but he keeps Esther, Anastasia, Anastasius keeps uh, uh, Esther, but doesn't keep Daniel. And uh, throughout history, we have collections that we've seen, like we, we know that they're there, like they have this, uh, the, the one that's the most important for the Hebrew Bible is what we call the Masoretic texts. And um, these are uh, what, where you see some of this, there's some of this at the Dead Sea Scrolls, but the Masoretes were really amazing group of Jewish scholars. And so uh, they've kept uh, copious amounts of notes about how this is supposed to be written, how this is supposed to take place. And the reason that Esther was controversial was is the voice of God wasn't heard. And so the Masoretic text, remember in the Jewish world, uh, it's okay to just have a story. It's totally fine for for worship, for study, uh, for midrash. It was totally fine. They never needed to create a collection. It's the Greeks that needed a collection. And so when Hellenism comes, the, the Hebrew culture starts to put it together. And that's what we get, and we call the Tanakh, the Hebrew, and what we know is the Hebrew Bible but it's not necessarily what you would call the Old Testament. Because even in the Tanakh, there are other texts. They have their own Apocrypha. It's just really cool. It's different than our Apocrypha. Um, and I have that book in my office. Too. So we have collections throughout antiquity that show what made it and what didn't. Esther is a weird text because, again, it's written in Hebrew and Greek. Daniel's in the same category. Um, and again, the the focus for the Hebrew culture was Esther is the story about how the festival of Purim began. And uh, for them, her being a historical per person was not necessarily as important as the festival of what it represented, which is fascinating to us, right? Like as Christians, we want her to be a real person, especially in the 20th and 21st century. We want... These, these things to be real. Uh, in the Jewish culture, that was never necessarily important. That's why I think, now this is Josh jumping off a ledge, 
and my professors are probably rolling around in their graves or screaming at the top of their lungs, feeling me mess up the dark side. But uh, they, they, uh, I, I think the interesting thing about Jesus's parables is he never makes an issue about the names of the people, but more of the people being the impetus of the story. So when you look at a parable, right, he starts off by, there was this man. Yeah. And and he doesn't tell you the name of the person. Uh, I think that's on purpose. I think that's a genre style bit of writing. Um, I think I could probably prove it exegetically, like if in an academic setting. Um, and I think there's a, a, a change between this Jewish culture to this new Jewish culture and then to this whatever we call it. And then eventually it gets to Christianity. And that parable is your uh, synthesis moment. So I, I, I didn't mean to rabbit trail, but Esther is that weird change over. Well, it kind of surprises me that one dude left out Daniel. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, Daniel is a, what they call an apocalyptic text. Um, there's lots of dreams and visions. lots of dreams, um, mysticism. So there's a there's another aspect of Judaism that we call myst mystical writings that, again, are not found. That would be considered the Book of Enoch, the Battle of Heaven and Hell. Right. Like, you all know about the Battle of Heaven and Hell, but it's not in your Bible. Yeah. Right. That's that's in a different book. It's it's called the Book of Enoch. Um, the story that you all always heard that Satan was cast out of heaven. Um, that's that's in the book of Enoch. That's not in our Bible. There's only one mention of it uh, in Ezekiel that he was cast out of heaven and chained to the seas of Tartarus. Um, and, and so there's this very in, in major, major thing that takes place. And Daniel is an entire book of mysticism. Like it's just all kinds of lights and all kinds of things. And uh, celestial beings and um in the in the jewish world that's also important to talk about but it remember they they didn't need a collection this it they 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 just knew that torah had to be read they knew that and it had to be taught and memorized they knew that um we need to talk about the scrolls of isaiah and jeremiah and don't forget habakkuk you know we don't want to we don't want to forget them um Malachi. It was always about don't forget the past, right? This is and and this is our legacy, but we don't necessarily need them to be real. I know it's weird. It's it's a totally different way of thinking of it. Um, I remember when my professor told us this. I was like, yeah, okay, whatever. You know, you got some more sort of axe to grind, and then you start reading rabbinical writings, and they're like. <laughs> We have no idea why this is so important to everybody else. <laughs> why, why is this so big, such a big deal? Like, uh, and that's and that's partly, I think, the impetus of where we start to see the collections that we now know as the Talmud uh, or the Mishnah or the Mishneh. They 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 started to see, oh well, I guess there's some sense of normalcy by us collecting these writings, and we'll writ midrashim while we're at it. <laughs> You know, because that's it's just a beautiful way of thinking. When we look at the New Testament, there's such a, a Romanesque Greek. This is the final word thing that it makes it hard for us to look at Jewish writings and go, oh, OK, so Esther doesn't have to be real. That's that that's already a sucker punch. Second, 
God's voice isn't heard. How do we deal with that? How's it that, so what is the story then for the Jewish culture? Those of you that don't follow Torah, well, you could get your head put on a spike. <laughs> like, like, like that's the, that's the end of the story. So I don't know if that answered your question. I hope I did. I'm going to interject a little bit. Uh, uh, and I believe like when Christianity became legal or accepted, right. and then the church would leaders of the church would meet they would have what they called a council mm -hmm. one of the things that they would discuss as they have all these writings right. in their case new testament what we consider new testament letters written by people and of course uh gospels um right and they had to go through this process and i think the word is canonization yeah where yeah. they decide they looked at a, a letter or a book and they said does this kind of measure up to the standards mm -hmm. of what we're all, what we all believe and some stuff made canon right and some stuff didn't it didn't mean that the stuff that didn't wasn't worth reading it's just that they weren't considering it the word of god and it's generational right this has been the only this has been the longest canon throughout history that you all have i want to say it's the council it's the second council of trent that we officially got the the canonization that you all have uh and then and then king james put it into english so like I, I mean i'm not making that as a joke i mean like for real it went hebrew texts greek texts latin text multiple yeah, latin texts uh and then by the time you get to the time of james and the church is split and all this stuff is happening you start to see okay now that the council of trent the second council of trent has said this is it there is no other thing. Uh, that's where you get the phrase only authorized version. The authorization came from the Council of Trent, not God. <laughs> they literally used the language authorization to say, King James, uh, this is the authorized version of the canon, the writings. Like, I mean, this whole book is other books that were written. This has got a Gospel of Bartholomew. Uh, there's Thomas. a it's got a gospel of Thomas. Thomas. Yeah. Love Thomas, but it's a 144 sayings of Jesus. It's awesome. <laughs> the infancy gospel of James, the uh the Acts of John, the Acts of Peter. Um, you know, so all of these were written at that same time frame. And so what the church did, and I'm gonna give them grace, <laughs> I'm gonna be nice. You have a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of books. We gotta shrink it down so that it makes sense what is it that we're trying to accomplish i can't throw all of this at them and all of this at them and then say this makes total sense which is also going back to karen's original question that's how we know there's all of these collections and esther comes in and out all the time because esther again mm -hmm. so like daniel if you think mysticism I mean, the book of Enoch has unicorns in it, <laughs> like for real. Uh, the Leviathan that we read about in the Hebrew Bible, that those are interesting stories. Um, Hebrew doesn't say whale. It says big fish in the book of Jonah uh, because the Leviathan was a real thing in their memory. You, you see? Uh, so Esther again, and I feel like I'm totally soapboxing and rabbit trailing, but there, there's this uh, 
canonization that's taking place as Esther has already been written. We know that she's written at a certain time frame and she just kind of sits there and she gets <laughs> tossed back and forth. Is she good? Is she not? Is she important? I think part of the struggle in the 20th century was so much emphasis put upon her beauty rather than her acts. <laughs> like I preached that people should use the book of Esther about talking about how women should use their feminine wives. Like I have heard it preached that way before. And and you're like, no, it's about the festival of Pearl. You know? Um, so I, I just think it's it's an interesting conversation. I, you made the statement that these people got together or you know we used to mm -hmm. basically though it was men right oh yeah yes oh yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, that, oh yeah using the term people was it, no it's this is a hundred percent patriarchy like yes. and it never has changed i i would love to be able to say that we've invited others to the table but until the 20th century that was not the case um hildegard of bingen uh who is one of my favorite female theologians uh did write theological statements and wrote exegetical papers about specific biblical texts that they allowed to be printed and they didn't badmouth her um and we have those things but as far as the canonization of the bible that's yeah. also why you have extremely masculine definitions of god whereas in greek there's multiple forms of that in hebrew there's multiple forms of that you know actually there's only one it's, but it's always masculine because it's men that are writing it so uh -huh. well i reread the verse first chapter this morning and i came away wondering asking myself did the men back in those days love their wives like the men do today or did they just consider them as property. possessions and property and well considering that some of them had hundreds <laughs> pardon considering the fact that some of them had hundreds right right yeah this is this is a problem um it's a problematic book specifically for that reason but again you you all have had the benefit in the uh, of the 20th century and the battles that took place to get women to the 20th century. Um, they did not have that voice at the time of Esther. And yes, she would have been considered, I mean, she's a part of the harem. Yeah. You know, so. Yeah, I don't know how many he had. Yeah. But lots, I'm sure. And uh, if, if it's the Xerxes that everybody says it is, he had thousands. He had seven eunuchs to take care of them. So yeah. <laughs> a lot of bodies. Yeah. So there's, so the answer unfortunately would be i i don't think so yeah i don't think it's the romantic concept of marriage that we have right one on one in our culture yeah particularly <laughs> that yeah so it's and and that and that's actually a fairly new anthropological thing yeah the 19th and uh, i would say the puritanical understandings of things you know you start seeing in the 1500s and moving all the way up until the 20th century you start to see mon monogamous relationships and uh but even monogamous relationships were not equal in any sense of no not, you're 100 percent right sally there was <laughs> they, was, they were still considered property and that's right low yeah that's uh, right. 
especially if you're a king, a, a marriage can be the result of a treaty, right? You know, I mean, a, you know, just a a political agreement with uh, two nations or or whatever. So it's funny you should say that because Esther is considered a great conversation about property exchange between a culture and a, a foreign king. That Esther becomes the property exchange and therefore becomes the negotiator of the property exchange but, for an entire people. But the Hebrews were um, captured people in the country right. of Persia. Right. So there wasn't any Hebrew person mm -hmm. giving her. To I, negotiate, I guess, right? No, he just yeah. asked for beautiful women and yeah. they sent her. And he just... One she was one of the slaves and her uncle her uncle decided she might fit send her mm -hmm. but back just because the queen did not go to him when he sent for her when to wear the crown and and when he sent her you know he said be done with her or kick her out nowadays if a woman doesn't do what the husband wants <laughs> He would. He won't be kicking around. <laughs> I mean, you know, more times. Well, than we hope any. so. Yeah. <laughs> I say we hope so. Yeah. We, we hope that if a guy said that, he would get his teeth knocked in. I mean, right. we would hope that 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 would not be the case. But, but that hadn't that didn't go back more than a hundred years. Right. Maybe. I mean, we're talking. That's probably less than fifty years that we're <laughs> our culture, our culture only. Yeah. Our culture only as that kind of understanding. You know, and I say our culture as in the United States, North American culture, you know, that that's not the case everywhere else in the world, you know. So this is a great conversation. I hope this is helping. I, I, I think it's a good way to look at Esther. Look at how people in India, even today, the women walk behind yes. her husband. Yes. And get married to people that they meet for the first time sometimes as well. If it's a family arranged uh, culture, still do that today. Yeah. And some conservative Christian sects still do that too. I can't <laughs> remember what they're called, but there's some that are, you know, I think they called it the shepherding movement or something like that, mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, they would pick who who is going to marry each other because they trust the, you know, the divine leadership of of their leaders. Just sounds horrible. Yeah. <laughs> it also happens in the United States. Yeah. Mm -hmm. If you ever hear somebody in the Christian world start talking about the quiver full, if you you need to walk away. <laughs> like like that's there's this there's this thing about women in the conservative, and I'm talking extremely conservative mm -hmm. fundamental church in the United States that has this idea that women are still viewed as property. Their job is to procreate and to create a quiver full of soldiers. And so that's where you'll see the, the the famous TV show that was on the the Duggan family or Dugan family. Oh, yeah. Duggar, right? Duggar. Duggar. No. That's from Arkansas. Yeah, from Arkansas. <laughs> that that movement that they're a part of creates a quiver full of people. And I mean they, they believe in God and Jesus and they have really nice hearts and stuff, but that's where that comes from. That's a full that's, flipper. Yeah. That's right. That's that theological understanding. We have created a quiver full of people for the glory of God. Not deer hunting. That right, <laughs> not to go deer hunting. It's for the second coming. So it's it's a whole thing. 
So with that being said, uh, if you are okay, uh, let's let's go ahead and start. Anybody online have anything they would like to contribute? Uh, we've we've had a pretty deep conversation this morning. They've all gone to sleep. Yep. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> That's okay. All right, here we go. We're starting in verse 16 on oh, chapter Josh. Chapter one, huh? I said war with you. Okay, I know you. <laughs> I think they are too. Just trying to find the mic button. <laughs> all right. Uh so we have just had this moment where Vashti has refused to come at the king's command. Um, and uh, he has talked about, oh, the eunuchs. We were going to talk about that someday today. We will. All right. So thereupon, Memekon declared in the presence of the king and the ministers, Queen Vashti has committed an offense not only against your ma majesty, uh, but also against all of the officials and against all the people in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. But the queen's behavior will make all wives despise their husbands as they reflect that King Ahasuerus himself ordered Queen Vashti to be brought before him. But she would not come. This very day, the ladies, uh, wait, this very day, the ladies of Persia and uh, Medea who have heard of the queen's behavior will cite to all your majesty's officials and there will be no end of scorn and provocation. If it please your majesty, let a royal edict be issued by you and let it be written into the laws of Persia and Medea so that it cannot be abrogated that Vasti shall never enter the presence of the king Ahasuerus and let your majesty bestow her royal state upon another who is more worthy than she. Then will the judgment be executed. Uh, then will the judgment executed by your majesty resound throughout your realm, vast though it is, and all wives will treat their husbands with respect, high and low alike. The proposal was approved by the king and the ministers, and the king did as Memukan proposed. Dispatches were sent to all the provinces of the king, to every province in its own script, and to every nation in its own language, that every man should wield its authority in his home and speak the language of his own people. Uh, I love this. What do these ladies think? Ted, run away. Think about the revolt. It's fixing to get nasty. So uh, you can love it all you want to. I did not say that. I'm joking. Yeah, run away. Run away. Uh, so yeah. Uh, so this is this is uh, just. The the interesting thing historically in the in the commentary that I would probably point out is uh, this this idea of to every nation to every person in their own language because uh, they had a ton of them at the time they did and uh, it most likely would have been Arabic you know like that would have been the the, the more prominent language but uh, or oh, I'm sorry Aramaic um. The uh, so it's an interesting thing that they wrote this, um, but the idea was so that the husband could readily understand it. Mm -hmm. So, and, and uh, the most important part again is uh, remember the culture, 
there's like 2% in the entire world at that time that could read. So it's not like they're actually going to read it. It's going to be that <laughs> somebody's going to read it. Somebody's going to read it for to the man to the man on the, the king's behalf. So I just have to point that little interesting tidbit out. And it's all about power. I mean, it's all about saying oh, yeah. that uh, because of what she did or didn't do right. at his request, it makes him look weak as a king. That's right. So they have to do this. They have to essentially punish her and select another. Otherwise, people may uprise. I mean, that's the impression I get from yeah. from that. And it's horrible. I mean, that they're, you know, we're talking about human beings being affected by this, but that that's my impression of it it's it's all about you know no one's going to think that you're an all-powerful king if your own wife you know doesn't do what you command her to do but it just doesn't punish the queen it punishes all females yeah that's true yeah that's the overall point like well but it's not punishment in the sense that it's anything new that's true yeah (laughs) i mean it's It's what was going on yeah Yeah. (laughs) it's what was going on so here, here would be the opportunity for my professor to say, this is a good example of humor in the Jewish culture. Like in, in all seriousness, this would have been for them, this would have been just as Sally caught in yeah. the sense of, yeah, okay. And that's different how? Yeah. Like it's not. Okay, it's not. fantastic. King Ahasuerus is doing this uh, right on, buddy. But in reality, it's not any different than it was before. You just do what you need to do to make yourself feel big. But it doesn't say why she didn't go. No. She just said no. It didn't matter. They didn't care. Mm -mm. (laughs) Nope. No reason. Just said, I'm not doing it. If she'd had a reason, they didn't care. Nope. Did you read your thing over here? Uh, Commentary. Commentary. About her being, about it being, yeah, about it being a national. Oh, dispatches were sent, or a domestic incident becomes a national crisis. Right, (laughs) the danger. (laughs) I mean, whatever it is, season Bashki refusal is preposterous, as is his solution. His attempt to preserve the king's honor makes the king look even sillier and more vulnerable. (laughs) Exactly true. Yeah, you have to have a law to say this. Is (laughs) yeah, yeah. Same thing happens nowadays, though. If the if the president's wife does something controversial, it's all over the news. That's true. Oh, yeah. That's true. Well, let's <laughs> let's let's keep going. Yes, let's move along. Uh, we're going to say something about eunuchs, or is that? Uh, well, we haven't got there yet. Okay. Well, right. I mean, <laughs> so there there is a historical idea of eunuchs that I, I do want to just take a moment and, it, and it, it'll just, it really won't take very long. And I'm going to be graphic. Okay? <laughs> How should talk I don't about know Unix. how you can do this. The, the historically, eunuchs were physically castrated. They were bigger than most people, like physically sized. Like uh, the, the objective was, is they were supposed to be uh honorable they were supposed to be sometimes the best soldiers of all time uh there was not gladiators and eunuchs go out throughout history so it's not just like this specific history but there was a sense of honor about being a eunuch that you were asked to protect the harem of whatever king so in this particular story the eunuchs are just in the background but eunuchs historically have had uh kind of just this interesting dialogue so 
But just think of the graphic detail of what happens from that. So think of a, a man that is humongous physically, and he has been, he is an honorable person. He can fight, he can do all of these things. And they chose to have, and it's technically their power taken away. They're relinquishing their power to the king. You think it was voluntary then? Sometimes. Well, most of the time. There, there are moments where kings would make slaves eunuchs. Uh, well, they're all slaves. Uh, just let, let me make sure I say that correctly. So all slaves were, uh, all eunuchs were slaves. Uh, so, so did the king ask them or? No. It was just happened. It just happened. Some of them volunteered. I would like to be this because here's the part. They were well-fed. They had a place to sleep. They didn't, all they had to do is just keep the harem safe or do whatever the king asked them to do. Um, Probably well-clothed. They were well-clothed. If they had, I mean, usually the images that you have of eunuchs usually just have a loincloth and things because it proves that there's nothing there, right? Um, but they, they were uh, well-armed. So to do this was a high place and honor uh, in most king's courts. And it completely removed any possibility of impropriety with <laughs> that's the right. harem. You know, that's you right. can't be accused of anything um, I assume would be hard to be accused of some sort of sexually inappropriate no, that's activity with the king's harem. So. And and you because you've taken away all of their power. And mm -hmm. so this power dynamic for these eunuchs comes directly from the king. So imagine you've taken away this person's power, but they represent the power of the king always watching you. So mm -hmm. This, this is the imagery that this culture would have had. Yes, the seven eunuchs come, they do all this stuff, but just imagine what this power is. This And, and I mean, the, my, my scholars aren't going to spend a lot of time on eunuchs, but historically, it's an interesting thing that I just had to bring up because it's, it's a power dynamic that gets kind of cast aside, even to the point of physically removing the power of a man as they represent the power of the king that they uh serve serve uh, and that's lording over these women at all times at all times that's not going to be a new board requirement is it? it's not a new board requirement it's not in the bible <laughs> thank god so uh so i i bring that to you because this this role of the eunuchs there's no question as to what they do. When the king says it, they just do it. Um, and off they go. Is that pretty much for all of the different tribes? Yes. I mean, I mean, if the tribe believed in having eunuchs or the the, the culture believed in having eunuchs, because it, it just changes depending on which culture they have. Um, you know, we had we know we had eunuchs in the Roman Empire. You know, we had we know that we had them in the Grecian Empire. So it's it's weird because they just kind of come and how it happens is is uh there's there's one story where they they took the chieftain of every village that they that they took over and that that was their eunuch hmm. you know because they publicly did it in front of their entire tribe uh romans were known to have uh raped the chieftain of the tribe that they took over in front of the entire tribe just to, to show i am now 
like the, and this is where I'm graphic, the penetration part of that becomes, uh, I am showing my power and authority over you. This is this is I'm a invading deal. you. I'm invading, like literally. Yeah. That's, literally yeah. that's literally it. Because, well, anyway. So I just had to say that Robin Hood. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, let's start chapter two. How's that for fun? Uh, sometime afterward, when the anger of King Ahasur subsided, he thought of Vashti. Oh, and what she had done, and what had been decreed against her. And the king's servants who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for your majesty. Let your majesty appoint officers in every province of your realm to assemble all the beautiful young virgins at the fortress Hushan in the harem under the supervision of the hedge. The king's eunuch, uh, guardian of the women, let them be provided with their cosmetics and let the maiden who pleases your majesty be queen instead of majesty, instead of Vashti. The proposal pleased the king, and he acted upon it. Of course he did. In the fortress Shushan lived a Jew by the name of Mordecai, son of Hair, son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjaminite. This is cool. Remember, Benjamin's the youngest of the, tri of the, of the tribe. Uh, so you're, you're supposed to know that Mordecai... Uh, which is, by the way, a Persian, uh, 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 which, hang on, what was it? There's something about his name. It's not Hebrew. It's not Hebrew, and it's a, there's a Persian aspect to it. I can't remember now. Oh, it's going to drive me crazy. It'll, I'll pull it up later. Anyway, uh, there's something awesome about his name and the fact that it does not refer to a member of the tribe of Judah. Mordecai was from the, but to a Jew from the kingdom of Judah, all the Babylonian exiles were, were from. Were from. Yeah, this is, I, I like the commentary. The, the part that I think was important and I got messed up was it's the first time that you hear the word Jew hmm. historically is in this passage. So he's a Jew from uh by the name of mordecai up until this point they were always called hebrews um or uh jake uh israelites and the tribe of benjamin would have been in israel which would have gone to um assyria before babylonia took right judah right so he's in the wrong place anyway exactly which is what diana's commentary was saying mm -hmm. And it was pretty common practice, too, if you're a ruling nation, to change people's names away from their own culture. Of course. It's to yours, you know, again, power. Always a power, power move. Yeah. And so it says, it says, Kish had been exiled from Jerusalem in the group that was carried into exile, along with King Jeconiah of Judah, that had, uh, which had been driven into Je King Exiled by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which they don't like at all. He was a foster. Yeah, he, they did not like Nebuchadnezzar, which interestingly enough, Nebuchadnezzar, we have a lot of archaeological evidence of. You know, he's the one that had the red beard. It's a lot of the sculptures that we found in that area. They're images of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's kind of cool. Um, so uh, he was a foster father to Hadassah, that is Esther. Now, that in the commentary, it'll tell you 
which means myrtle. Uh, and there's this Persian connection to it being star, but um, I think that's what the thing says. It was not uncommon for diaspora Jews to have both a Hebrew and uh, name and a vernacular name, such as Judah Maccabee. Okay, cool. Um, Hadassah, that is Esther, his uncle's daughter, for she had neither father nor mother. The maiden was shapely and beautiful. I love how that says that. Uh, and when her father and mother died, Mordecai adopted her as his own daughter. When the king's order and edict was proclaimed, and when many girls were assembled in the fortress Hushan, under the supervision of Haggai, uh, or Hedge, the Esther was too taken into the king's palace under the supervision of Haggai, guardian of the women. The, the girl pleased him and won his favor, and he hastened to furnish her with cosmetics and her rations, we'll give her food, as well with the seven maids who were her due from the king's palace. And he treated her and her maids with special kindness in the harem. Esther did not reveal her people or her kindred, for Mordecai had told her not to reveal it. Every single day, Mordecai would walk out and walk about in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was faring and what was happening to her. Uh, so this is this is kind of cool, no, but not really. But anyway, uh, when each girl's turn came to go to King Ahasuerus at the end of the 12 months treatment prescribed for women, for that was the period spent on beautifying them, six months with oil or myrrh, and six months with perfumes and women's cosmetics. And it was after that that the girl would go to the king. Whatever she asked for would be given her to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. She would go in the evening and leave in the morning for a second harem in charge of Shagaz, or Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, guardian of the concubines. She would not go again to the king unless the king wanted her. When she would be summoned by name, when the turn came for Esther, daughter of Abihal, the uncle of Mordecai, who had adopted her as his own daughter, to go to the king, she did not ask for anything but what Hegai, the king's eunuch, guardian of the women, advised. Yeah, Esther won the admiration of all who saw her. Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus in his royal palace in the 10th month, which is the month of Tibet in the seventh year of his reign. The king loved Esther more than all the other women, and she won his grace and favor more than all the virgins. So he set a royal diadem on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. The king gave a great banquet for all of his officials and courtiers, the banquet of Esther. He proclaimed a remission of taxes for the provinces and distributed gifts as befit a king. And when the virgins were assembled a second time, Mordecai sat in the palace gate, but Esther still did not reveal her kindred or her people as Mordecai had instructed her. For Esther obeyed, listen to that language, for Esther obeyed Mordecai's bidding as she had done when she was under his tutelage. At that time, when Mordecai was sitting in the palace gate, Bichthon and Therese, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and plotted to do away with King Ahasuerus. Mordecai learned of it and told it to Queen Esther, and Esther reported it to the king in Mordecai's name. The matter was investigated and found to be so, and the two were impaled on stakes. This was recorded in the Book of Annals at the instance of the king. 
Considering the later fear with which she was going to go to the king, how did she tell, how did she report this to the king? <laughs> Makes me wonder. Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of holes. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's a story. We didn't care if there were holes. That's right. Uh, that, uh, <clears throat> this is this is the part that's interesting for them is, is that uh, there's just there's just a whole bunch of holes. They, they <laughs> The, the part they didn't that, worry about it. They didn't. Uh, Mordecai does the right Jewish thing. He adopts his uh, niece. Um, she's still his brother's daughter, but it, you know he's he's taking care of her. Uh, Mordecai is the hero of the story. Did, did you guys catch that? Yes. Mm-hmm. Why did she? Re- why did she not take anything with her when she went to visit? Well, because somebody else told her what to bring. The the, the other eunuch over here at verse uh, but fifteen. But he must have liked her well enough, or he saw something going on anyway to tell her not to bring anything. Because I'm assuming that they would have told the eunuch that took all the other girls, virgins, to the king. They all took something. I get it's hard for me to figure he, out what they might have really... taken. <laughs> was impressed by her or really liked her and wanted her to succeed and maybe gave her a little bit of you know insider information That's or whatever right. yeah i'm and a pessimist you're a pessimist <laughs> i'm a pessimist i i think the part that's fascinating about this story is is that remember me telling you about the part about being a eunuch you've relinquished all of your power and authority it doesn't mean that you're not still a man Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. and Haggai is still a, a eunuch, and he says, "Okay, she's a hottie." <laughs> I mean, like that's literally mm-hmm. what it says, mm-hmm. you know. And then what does he do? He puts extra favor onto her, and he does whatever she wants, and he gives her extra stuff. And then, because again, this is me being a pessimist, and you and I, uh, you're you're always I'm you're always the optimist. You're, you're always a better optimist, and I'm always accused of being <laughs> saying that the Esther is half full. I'm not saying whatever it is half empty because <laughs> I, I i honestly think that this is another uh, story point where uh the the author is trying to say even in that place hester still didn't have any power even though we, we're going to romanticize it right like and i don't think that you're wrong i'm just saying right. in 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 my pessimistic point of view <laughs> i get really mad at this part of the story mordecai is used his own niece in my opinion to gain favor take advantage of her to yeah. better himself so to speak he yeah. also found a, a plot to, to hurt the king right know? so yeah that's what would make him good yeah and then again their heads were impaled or their bodies were impaled on stakes that's my favorite part of the story I like you liked that as a kid i did i, I just couldn't <laughs> wait to read it i just and my bible says you know hanged in the gallows or whatever but right. then down yeah. at the bottom it says or <laughs> or impaled by yeah, stakes so yeah, it's a very that? european idea to be hung in gallows yeah and that, that's it's a very good translation when you see that but that's a that's a greek to english it's five minutes till you have to go away. No, it's 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 five minutes till. Oh no, it's right. It's seven minutes. Compromise. So, I uh. So so there's a couple things that are taking place here. There's there's obviously a lot of power dynamic. Um. 
I think that, okay, now I'm going to be even more pessimistic. Okay. Get the glass out. Yeah, I'm going to get the glass out, Ted. Make, balance me out here. He doesn't find favor in her in the way that you think. Listen to the way that this story is written. She comes to spend the night. He, she does everything that he wants that she was instructed about. And then the king says, yep, okay, I'll keep her. That's not cool. Right. I'm going to keep the glass half empty on that with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's true. And that's, I mean, and she's not married to him, is she? Yeah. No, no, now, now no, she's no. still his property. She's just made great. Right. So. Yeah. So then did he send all the others away? Oh, no. no, no, they were they were still in the harem. Okay, yeah. oh, they could I'm be just, called up at any time. At any time. Back, the backstop. Yeah. They could be called up at any time. And if she made him mad, then... Yeah, you know, that's naturally... If you didn't do what he wanted, if you yeah. said no, that's all you had to do was say no. Right. That's right. Maybe even frown. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I mean... Roll your eyes. Oh, yeah, I don't want to do it. <laughs> We can go on. <laughs> oh my goodness! <laughs> you asked for it. I did ask for it, but I, I, as I, the world turns, as the world turns, I think I think the part that's uh, this is where it always gets romanticized. This is the mm -hmm. Esther. Esther chose to do this. Yeah. Esther did not choose to do this. Esther had no voice in this at all. This was decided by every other man in the story, and she just went along with it. But this but is you what, had no choice. But you had no choice. Yeah. And it makes me wonder what her age is. Oh, she's I mean, got to be, be young. like 13 or 12, somewhere in yeah, there. Think, I mean, you've got you to know? think gross and graphic. She's a virgin. Yeah. Remember, yeah. in this culture, women were, yeah. were as soon sure. as they were able to, they were designed to procreate, to create more Hebrews or to create more of the of the people. So she's got to be young, which is even mm -hmm. creepier in this story. <laughs> which, I mean, you know, somebody at, at that age, probably they did what they were told. That, I mean, yeah. you, they didn't that have culture, well, all, she was did. a female. She didn't have a mind. No. <laughs> and second of all, that she would have to do what she was told. That's right. Well, and, and, a, and a young person would not know that that, that she had a voice well i, I mean right. i think yeah. even an older woman that look at where she was at and look at where she could get yeah. right so i mean i think it's manipulation i'll give her a little a credit somewhat once she's there as much as what she can to to realize to follow that what that one man's suggestion or unique suggestion is so she could get up yeah. to where yeah, but she's still. She's, but she, okay, so if, if we're going to be half full and all of that, how is this different from Mary? She did what she was told. She had no choice. That's tricks, right? Oh, there's nothing wrong different with for Mary. That's why I struggle with the whole birth narrative. But that's a another conversation for another day. Save that for December. Yeah, we have to save that for December. <laughs> yeah, I really yeah. struggle with. The, the Mary story for that exact reason, Pam. Oh, gosh. Oh, no. I am. 
Gosh, I'm sorry I missed last week. Did, I, did you hear that, Pam? Say it again. Oh, okay. I was just saying that's I, I it just we had something pop up that said something signed out. Second, so yeah. So I, I yeah, so no, this is this is a really good question, Pam, because this is a problem. This is um I think again our culture loves to romanticize uh the the bible uh this bible stories but when we really look deeply at them there's there's a part of it that is icky and we have to call it out and we can talk about how our faith has led us to this understanding especially when we talk about mary but esther's story to me has always been uh, has has been a sad story, um, and 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 I, again, I, I I like the movie. I I, I don't mind the Veggie Tales conversation, but <laughs> even outside the world of academia, I've I I uh, you know I have three sisters, and the idea of my sister uh, having to go through this process, mm -hmm. and 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 then my sister being told at a church camp. Look at how awesome Esther is. And yes, she is awesome. But I want to talk to her, uh, talk to my sisters about how Esther is awesome in spite of yeah. the men that are in that story. That's kind of my glass half full element of this. Because yeah. you, I, I hope all of you know how valued you are and how God has put his same Holy Spirit in you that he's, he's put in, in a man and you know, uh, there's no limits to what you can do. But unfortunately, history has put limits on. So that's, is that half full? That was a really good yeah. half full. And I think that's a good way to stop the, the Bible study for yeah. today. So we'll start with chapter three next week. Um, and the story of Haman. So the story, Haman gets into the story and Haman is another guy in the story that is, a really whiplash <laughs> yeah right <laughs> yeah dr evil so. i am gonna have whiplash yeah. coming back and forth uh, evil so uh <laughs> so that's where we'll stop for today i'm gonna stop the recording <laughs>